Nuclear Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and as always, this is the show where we talk about how things in Montpelier shake out for Wyndham County. I have with me today regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, who's one of three representatives for the town of Brattleboro. Hello, Emily. Good morning, Olga. Good morning. And... Thank you, Anne Sawson, who is a policy fellow at the Nelson A. Rockefeller Feller Center at Dartmouth College for joining us today. So glad to have you on the show. Thank you for having me on the show. The, I, I find this so fascinating that you are finally on the show, Anne, because we have been spending almost a year and a half talking about COVID, and you are the first public health person we've had on the show and it's suddenly hitting me that "Hmm, we probably should have had you on sooner. (laughs) So thank you for, for joining us, even as the governor has announced this week that uh, for all intents and purposes, we are back to quote unquote, or we're moving back to quote unquote normal. I would like to start. And if you don't mind, we've been talking a lot about public health, but I think a lot of people don't, they think they know what it is. And then there's what it is. Could you kind of build that foundation for us? Thank you. So when we think about public health, we're thinking about health at the population level and not simply at the individual level. Often when we think about health, we're thinking about individuals and the things that we do in our lives um, to um, be healthy um, and we often think about health in relation to the healthcare system. Um, so those that we think about being involved in health would um, include doctors and nurses. But when we think about population health, we take a much more expansive view of the activities that produce and promote health. We're thinking about the laws that we enact. Um, we're thinking about actions that happen at community level. We're thinking about the environment in which we live in. And so all of these things shape um, health at population level and then also health at individual level. Mm-hmm. You were talking, Emily, as we were preparing for this show, that one of the things about public health that you find really interesting is that we look at individual actions And then we look at, say, policy actions. And sometimes we confuse the two when we have talked about COVID. Share with us, Emily, how some of those policy conversations around public health have spooled out for you in the legislative level. Absolutely. And I I met Anne on Twitter, um, which is makes me sort of believe in the modern world in a certain way. So I'm very grateful. I don't know if we would have met otherwise, or it would have been a lot harder for us to meet otherwise. And so I'm really grateful for these really well-articulated critiques of some of the ways we were thinking about our public health responses during the last year and a half. I think often um, on the legislative level, when we think about many of our public health responses on a legislative level are punitive. They are designed around punishing people who make bad health decisions in order to help someone defer that decision or avoid that decision. So that would be like a sin tax. A sin tax, which we've talked a lot about things like sin tax and criminalizing drugs and decriminalizing drugs. And we've spent a lot of time talking about that in the context of prostitution here and sex work and all of those things. And so we know because of researchers like Anne, that actually doesn't work very well. And in my um, political opinion, just punishes poor people usually and leaves wealthy people to carry on sinning to their heart's content. And I also, you know, if we look back to the history of our country and how our political structures developed, it's hand in hand with the churches, especially in New England. And we carry that story of personal responsibility being everything and the onus being on the individual to make good moral decisions and push aside this idea that the environment is really the number one enabler of health. And so I'm sure we'll talk about the social indicators of health and all of that jazz later on. But the best example for me is there were a lot of Vermonters who were not able to stay home and stay safe during the order because they had to go to work. 
because the state did not set up any mechanism for them to feed their families or maintain their livelihood or their housing in a meaningful, non-judgmental way without them going to work. And so what we saw was these really high rates of COVID, say, in restaurant workers. So that's just sort of one example for me about how we shape those conversations in the legislature. We look at individuals and individual decisions around housing and homelessness, rather than looking at sort of systemic solutions to make sure that we have an environment that can meet everyone's needs so that they can then have the opportunity to be healthy. And from your perspective as as a researcher, I know Vermont is getting a lot of praise right now for how it handled COVID. And I don't want to take away from the things that were done well. At the same time, from your perspective, what were some of the the challenges and missed opportunities in the public health response in Vermont? Sure. So let me start by saying that I think that there are a lot of things that Vermont has done well, but often we ignore some of the things that we have done well to address you know, those risk factors that go beyond individual control. For example, one of the things that Vermont did really well is that it employed expansive use of housing protections for Vermonters who couldn't stay at home safely during the pandemic. Vermont enacted one of the country's most robust eviction moratoriums. It provided housing for the state's um, entire homeless population through an expansion of the existing um, motel voucher program. It also had um, a moratorium on utility shutoffs. And now experts across the country are recognizing the importance of housing policy, not only for protecting high-risk populations, but also in controlling transmission at population levels. So this is something that I think Vermont did um, really well, and we have to really think about what that means looking forward. Now, if I think about some of the things Vermont didn't do as well, sometimes, um, particularly later in their response, we really focused our attention on individual risk factors, individual behavior change, instead of some of the structural factors that we know drive transmission at a population level. We saw, especially in our vaccination efforts, that we really didn't look at the ways that which in which some groups are much more um, vulnerable to infection and the importance of targeting them earlier in our efforts. And that became really important in the spring. I'd also say that a lot of the messaging that came out was really focused on individual behavior changes rather than focused on what the structural factors are um, that put some groups at risk. Let me explain what I mean by that. You know, we often heard leaders say six foot spaces, masks on faces, crowded spaces. And that's fine if you're able to adhere to social distancing guidelines, if you're able to stay home, if you don't work outside of the house, if you live in a single family residence. But the reality is that a lot of Vermonters um, work outside of their homes. They're not able to maintain um, social distance and they are interacting in public. And that means that we really need to think about what the interventions are that happen in workplaces or how do we protect people who are living in congregate living settings. And I think to some extent, Vermont could have gone much further in protecting people who are at higher risk um, in their place of employment. Um, This means enacting more greater workplace protections. And it really means targeting those congregate living settings in different ways. We did a really fantastic job right to the point where it was gonna interfere with commerce. And then we stopped. So with the housing, the incredible housing work that we did, I think that was a really profound acknowledgement. But even as we were enacting the eviction moratorium, I think we could have done a much better job communicating with the public, especially with people who owned housing, that the point of it wasn't because everyone was about to be shunted into dire poverty and we want, didn't want them to feel the effects of it. It was actually that keeping people housed is a public health response. It had nothing to do with 
poverty or access to housing or anything like that. It was really just that like right now, no one can be moving anywhere. And so we are keeping people from moving. When I was speaking to individual landlords who said under normal circumstances, I would be evicting this person and I feel trapped. And then I was like, I know, thank you for all you've done to help the public health response. Like this will be over and then things will carry on with you being free to evict someone and we will have services to help that person find their next unit. But that sense of we're all in this together in a public community health response rather than individual solutions, I think, was missed. And when I talked to business owners really early on in the pandemic, this is a bill that we passed in real life in this like sort of package right before we all got sent home on the 13th of March last year, was a provision to allow workers comp to be extended to folks who caught COVID on the job. And that that would be covered by workers' comp insurance if and only if the employer was using all of the sort of required VOSHA and state of Vermont health guidelines. If not, the employer would be liable for all those costs of someone's health expenses. And I found over and over that employers didn't know this. Mm -hmm. And so they felt like they were sort of like being good, nice employers by letting people sort of wiggle a little bit on their mask use. And so I saw over and over again that businesses were very good about mask use when engaging with customers because they thought that was the point of safety. It was about, you know, it was about the consumer exchange. But then when people went back into the shop to work on the cars together, when they went back into the back of the house at the restaurant to be on the line together or to pick up food from a window folks would relax their guidelines. And that's where we saw so much of the transmission, right? It was like within really close, warm settings with people laboring together. And it so much of it was because employers really didn't know because no one told them hmm. that that was where they had the responsibility as sort of responsible folks. And I remember as a supervisor during this time, getting these really intense conversations with the folks I was supervising saying like, this is my responsibility as your supervisor to make sure that everyone stays safe here. It's not like me being mean. It's just like, this is like my top responsibility as your supervisor to ensure your safety. I only knew all of that because I was a legislator. Like I didn't have the arm of the, of OSHA to really support me. Interesting. And what's, what's your response to, to what Emily just said? What does that bring up for you? I would agree with that. I think that there's there was a need to build collective understanding of why we were undertaking you know these measures and to say this isn't our shared interest. These are these policies, these protections are um, are benefiting all of us. These are fundamental parts of our responses. And, you know, there's a lot of celebration of other things that we did well, but there's not enough recognition of how important these things are. And that this actually is part of public health, that a lot of health is actually produced outside of the health sector. So I think that that's one thing. And that we, we need to exit the pandemic with an understanding that so much of our health is not produced in the health sector. It's these other interventions. And I'd also echo what Emily said about the need for education around some of these measures. When we really focus narrowly on individual actions, you know, masking, distancing, we often ignore sort of the environment in which they're happening. And so many were considered themselves compliant with the guidance, but were actually in high-risk settings, um, engaged in high-risk activities without even knowing it. Um, You know, I observed that as well, that in many workplaces, you know, there were masks on when interacting with the public, but you also, you saw masks off in cramped, crowded spaces, or you people, you know, sharing, you know, sharing lunch in a crowded, you know, room with that was poorly ventilated. And so we didn't go as far as we needed to, I think, at some points and really educating the public about the ways in which these environmental factors drove infection. You've written some commentaries for, say, VT Digger, some other publications. And I believe in one of them, you were talking about the state's rollout of vaccines. And one of the things you brought up is, well, we should be vaccinating essential workers along with 
some of our older population because of these environmental factors. Am I understanding that correctly? That is correct. And just to provide a little bit of context, you know, we see um, vastly higher rates of infection in our essential workforce, people who are working um, outside of the home, often in higher risk settings. And so for that reason, the national committees that were convened to look at this issue made a recommendation that states prioritize the essential workforce very early in vaccination rates. And the reason for prioritization is not simply to ensure that we reach them but actually it recognizes that if we vaccinate them early, that we can reduce infection rates. Um, we can protect them. And you know, this makes a difference because we know that the vaccine rollout took several months and we saw um, a wave of infections both in the winter and then again um, in the spring in the state of Vermont. Um, can I jump so, in for a second? Yeah. So my understanding, and I think this is part of what's really hard for some folks to get their heads around, is that we vaccinated with priority on who would be most likely to die, which is an individual, right? And it was an individual, and I'm sorry for older people who are sort of on that end and now have heard me say that, but which is about sort of the individual health of the individual person who is contracting COVID. But when we focus on essential workers for vaccination, we're actually looking at people who are most likely to transmit to someone else. And so when we focus on the elderly, they might be most likely to have an individually negative impact from contracting COVID, but they're actually fairly unlikely to be spreading it once they contract once they contract it. And so when we focus on sort of the essential workers, we're focusing on the full population and the impact of that person getting COVID on the wider population rather than the individual person's experience of getting COVID. Yeah. And when I, and maybe I can back up a little bit too and see when we're thinking about COVID nineteen, we often hear the term vulnerable or you know talk about vulnerable groups. And what we mean when we use that often is people who are at very high risk of severe illness or death. Um, so the elderly and those with underlying medical conditions. What we often don't think about though is that there are people who are socially vulnerable. They're at higher risk of infection and they're at higher risk of transmitting to other people. Now, what structures social vulnerability? It's really where people live and where they work. So people who are working in the essential workforce or in public facing settings are at much greater risk of infection. People who are living in congregate living settings, such as prisons, nursing homes, college dormitories, crowded households, multi-generational households are at, at much higher risk of infection and also of transmission to others. And where we see the worst outcomes is where we see this overlay of medical and social vulnerability. So our long-term care facilities had incredibly high rates of infection and death because we see you know, a medically fragile population living in a congregate setting coming together with a highly mobile workforce often that's moving between facilities. We, you know, see high rates of infection in other congregate settings, but not as much mortality simply because um, those populations are less medically vulnerable. So those are the things that drive disparities at population level as well. When we talk about health equity, we're really thinking about those differences in exposure is in the ways in which they overlay um, with differences um, and underlying risk factors. So to return to your question about the essential workforce, um, the reason for prioritizing um, that workforce is because it's at such greater risk of, in, of infection and transmitting to other populations, including medically vulnerable populations. And so I wrote that commentary um, to sort of explain why it's in our interest um, to vaccinate the essential workforce as a priority, why some people are at much greater risk and also drive transmission um, at the population level. Mm -hmm. What becomes incredibly politically difficult, and I think one of the reasons that we didn't do that in Vermont and I am grateful. No, not, I don't know. I had definitely had moments where I was like, I'm so glad I don't have to be the one making these decisions. <laughs> but in fact, I sort of wish I was. What is so politically difficult is when you have to choose a population and say like, you're an essential worker and you're not. Hmm. 
And so a sort of a classic, I think, a pandemic example of this is teachers versus restaurant workers. For the most part, especially like early in the pandemic, a lot of teachers were still teaching from home, but are a very powerful political block. And we're having like an incredibly difficult time and probably like more gray hair in that population than many others during the pandemic. I am not in any way negating how hard it was to be a teacher over the last two years. But restaurant workers were actually in a higher risk setting day to day, but are have no political power whatsoever. In fact, like, I mean, they have negative political power, basically, because their bosses have a lot of political power. So it becomes practically politically untenable or requires immense amounts of political courage is probably a better way to phrase it in order to choose one population as more essential than the other when you're in an environment of scarcity, such as our vaccine rollout, where we didn't have enough for everyone simultaneously. And what Emily just said, are there best practices or better ways to approach that question of essential workers and vulnerable populations? To circle back to what Emily said, I would agree that it becomes really difficult to determine, you know, prioritization within groups. And the CDC looked at that as well and said, we should vaccinate all essential workers, including teachers. Teachers were designated um, in the part of the essential workforce. Vermont decided not to do that. Vermont used a straight age banding approach. Um, but one of the things that Vermont did earlier in the pandemic, and Emily knows much more about this than I do, is that it used um, or it had had hazard pay in place. So it already had identified those that it, the state considered at higher risk. And so that would have been a natural system for, for determining who was included in the essential workforce or not. And I would agree, you know, teachers were at increased risk, but there were other groups, including food service workers that were at vastly higher um, risk of infection. And I think the probably the best approach would have been to vaccinate the entire essential workforce um, in some order before um, moving to um, an age-based approach or a, an approach that just opened vaccination up to the, to the general population. That's obviously not what happened um, in Vermont. And I want to just conclude this by saying why that's important. Months went by between the point at which we started vaccination and which we reached the youngest age bands. And we, and we were vaccinating those with the highest rates of infection in our state at the latest stage of um, our vaccination program. That meant that there were a lot of infections that happened in our state that could have been averted if we had if we had a chosen a different approach to that. And I hope that helps us to understand as we look forward that really the decisions that we make about how to prioritize populations, how to allocate our resources, they really do make a difference at population level. And that when we think about equity, equity is not something we do just as a mere reflection of our social values, but it actually is really important to achieving out population level outcomes. It's uh, equity is foundational to public health, not not just something that we you know we do um, because we think it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that after the break we can talk about sort of what this means for all the other things in the world that new problems we need to grapple with. This isn't whatever the sports idiom is that I don't have for like when you analyze something after it happens. Monday morning quarterbacking. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) This isn't Monday morning quarterbacking. It is in fact, lessons learned that we can carry into the future for what, not just the next like terrible pandemic, but in fact, the public health challenges that we grapple with every day in our state. Yes, thank you. And for our listeners, I hope you are all feeling extremely proud of Emily and I right now, because not only did she try to use a sports metaphor, but I actually knew what it was. So um, that's mark that in red on your calendar. (laughs) The Montpelier Happy Hour on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro will return in a the 
second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts and at our webpage, themontpelierhappyhour.captivate.fm, as well as Emily's YouTube channel and our Facebook page. Emily, what do we need to remind listeners that we haven't reminded them for a while? Oh, we really haven't, have we? I'm so sorry. It's usually my job to remember this one. The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests. And that's it. Not the radio station, not the TV station, not the Facebook. Nowhere else, just the host and the guests. We are quite capable of what goes through our own minds and expressing what goes through our own minds. And... Could we start with touching on um, public health and COVID and shame and stigma? And how did that show up in the work that you're doing? So we often think about individual behaviors as being what drives the pandemic. And there's a lot of focus, both in terms of our interventions and our public discourse around individual behavior and failure to engage in the behavior changes that are asked of us. And so, you know, we've seen shaming emerge as a national pastime over the past year. Who's who's not masking? Who's not staying home? Who's gathering with friends? You know, it's, you know, you see so much of our public discourse center around this. What's the problem with this? Well, first of all, the problem is it's not individual behavior that really drives um, transmission, what we see. And this, and this focus on individual behavior and shaming affects how we direct our time, our attention, and also our policy resources. It turns us away from the structural factors um, that are driving transmission and that put people at risk and the responses that we need um, to, um, to address those factors. Shame ignores sort of these deep-seated um, structural inequalities that are disproportionately burdening some communities. At the same time, shame is really not an effective public health strategy. Um, we've been asking the public to engage in extraordinary changes um, in the way um, that it lives, learns, works, and play. And so we need to do that in a way um, um, that's compassionate, rooted in empathy, um, if we want um, to sustain um, those changes over time. So I've really pushed back very hard against the discourse of shaming um, and blaming um, because it's just simply not effective at individual um, or population level. Um, Where does shame come out often? Um, we often direct it at groups that we don't see deserving of our empathy and our compassion. So young people have borne the brunt of it. Um, college students have you know, been a frequent target. Um, we've you know, shamed others, such as um, our um, you know, incarcerated population. Um, but in reality, when we look at those populations that um, are at it, you know, that have higher infection rates, we, you know, there's a, a closer examination re- reveals that it's not, you know, just their beh- individual behavior or choices, but rather their choices are severely constrained by the environments in which they live in. They're not choosing their exposure. They're in environments that have just um, far greater exposure. And so shared, that's shared bathrooms, shared cafeterias. Exactly. They're in hallways you know, where um, transmission can happen, you know, very readily. There was, there was a study that came out of New Zealand, um, where, which has, you know, these per, very pristine quarantine hotels that have been set up for travelers into the country. And it found the transmission happened in the hallway of a hotel between um, two rooms that never had any physical contact um, with one another. And when I read that, I thought, Given that transmission can happen um, in that environment, how do you prevent it in a college dormitory where there's frequent movement or in um, a prison or a nursing home um, where it's just it's simply not possible to limit exposure um, or can or modify the environment enough, you know, to uh, enough to protect uh, residents and, and workers? 
Thank you, Anne. I just have to quickly say, hopefully those who are listening to the podcast will not hear any of this at all because I'll be able to edit it out. But the National Guard has been doing some kind of training flyover over my neighborhood for days and... I hope you guys can't hear it because it's loud. We can hear it, but for anyone who's watching on Facebook and is not going to hear this edited out, I would like everyone in Southern Vermont to know that it is the Massachusetts National Guard I thought that it is was, doing these flyovers and your state legislators have no control whatsoever of what the National Guard does. And if you have any challenges with it, I recommend you call your congressional delegation. Thank you, Emily. I thought it was the Nash, the Mass National Guard, but I didn't want to say it without having confirmed it first. It very much is. Yes. yes. They came over so low yesterday over my neighborhood. They actually waved their wings at me and I waved to the pilots because I could oh, see them. That's kind of adorable. <laughs> it was kind of cute, except it was a very big plane. Both of you have talked about public health and the, the need to take some of the emphasis off the individual. So how could a, a state or a community communicate their messages better? Take, taking that onus off of shame and blame and the individual. I have a really good example. So the Vermont Department of Health, which has done a really good job with lots of things over many years, and I think are generally fantastic people who are great at their job have this campaign right now um, that I think they think of as a harm reduction campaign. And I'm sorry that I'm saying this publicly because I've been meaning to write a letter and haven't yet, where they are very, um, and it says basically something like, be compassionate for people who are using opioids. They're not bad people, they're making bad decisions. But it's still is very focused on the fact that the opioids are bad and that these are bad choices that people are making. And so it takes this step back from like that folks using are bad people, but it's still very focused on these individual bad decisions on this like massive public health campaign that's all over the state. And I see that they're trying so hard, right? Like that they're moving off this bad people narrative that I think a lot of folks have about people who use opioids, but it's missing the boat in such a profound way about what we actually need to do as a state to lower the death rate. Hmm, interesting. And did you see that campaign? I have seen that campaign and I would add too that I think that we need to destigmatize um, people in the in the behaviors that they're engaged in. But we also need to reject policies that are grounded in stigma. Um, and so messaging alone is not going to address the factors that drive the opioid epidemic. If there's something that we can learn from the COVID-19 pandemic is that most negative health outcomes, whether they're COVID-19 infections or other adverse outcomes are really driven by unmet need, people not getting what they need. And we need policies that meet people's needs. And that means that if people are engaged in substance use, we need to understand what are the needs that are not being met there and meet them with compassion and empathy where they are. Um, and that requires not simply nice language or a change in how we think about them, but actually really changing the approaches. And this came out very strongly in the debate around the decriminalization of buprenorphine. Um, and I've seen it emerge in other um, policy debates as well. Um, and so we need to pair those policy changes with, with a change in the way that we communicate um, with the public. Um, it's, I think it's really important that we rehumanize the narrative around marginalized populations and that we make sure that we're generating public empathy um, as um, we're undertaking um, some of these changes. Going back to that example of the reducing harm campaign, and I, I agree, and the policies need to be there along with the messaging, but just looking at the messaging as an example, how could we have better put out that messaging? Like, what could well, it say instead? Agree with Anne that I think the messaging is less important. One thing that we've learned during the pandemic is that when we house people in supportive environments where they're able to connect in a meaningful way with others, we reduce negative health outcomes. So down here in Wyndham County, while we were housing everyone who needed housing, we actually reduced our overdose mortality rate. We were the only place in the state that did. 
And it's because we had folks who were able to have meaningful conversations with other people about their use and get the support and care and company that they needed while they were using. For me, that's ever like, why would we not carry that like brilliant, amazing lesson learned into next month, say after July 1st? That's a thing like sort of speechless about how frustrating this is. But I think folks who work in housing and in sort of the more justice oriented side of public health, like Anne, have been saying for decades, that's what Housing First is about, that like public health outcomes follow people being housed. And I think it was in some ways like sort of a story that we told, even though we all believed it and been sort of researched writ large, we've seen proof of it here in Wyndham County. And yet we are still sending people out into tents on July 1st. Yeah, I feel in some ways that as a, I'll just speak to Vermont because that's what we know, but we have had such a year and a half of upheaval for many of us that our desire to get back to certainty and a sense of safety and AKA the old normal, which I think is so, I think we did that after Irene too. There were a lot of people who just wanted to get back to to normal, quote unquote, that we are in that rush to get back to where we feel okay again. We are forgetting some of the lessons learned. I have to admit, I worry about that personally, because if we're going to go through all this, then what's better about it? Let's bring that through too. Like, what, the example you just used, Emily. Yeah, and I would, just to follow up on what Emily said and the housing protections that were in place, we should recognize that we entered the pandemic in a crisis. We already had an affordable housing crisis in this state. The opioid epidemic in this state was already at crisis levels. And what we saw is that the protections that we brought to bear on for the um, purposes of protecting people from COVID were also critical um, in in addressing the crisis that was already there. People who are housed in the motels had greater access to services and connections. Um, And we have a very vast literature showing the critical links between housing and a broad range of other health outcomes. Now, we all know that motel housing is not um, the solution to Vermont's housing challenges. People need um, appropriate, you know, safe housing on a permanent basis. Motel housing is merely a bridge to that. That said, you know, displacing 700 people from motel housing is going to rapidly erode the gains that we've made um, over the last year. And we really need to be thinking about what's the bridge um, to that next solution. How do we um, secure those gains while we expand um, our stock of um, affordable um, housing, a permanent supportive housing um, that really meets um, the needs of um, those um, populations. I want to just go back quickly to the um, question around uh, sort of communication and how we think about it. And this is where I think it really becomes important to have good messaging around that. It's when we understand that most people can can be rehoused um, and that we um, and that it's really a function of on that this is a housing crisis. Um, and not anything more than that, um, or not a crisis of unhousable Vermonters, um, then we start to really think about this different, um, and we start to think about the policy options in front of us differently. And when we start to separate people out into different categories of vulnerability, um, and not recognize that there's simply not enough housing for them, and then it, you know, it leads us to make decisions that, you know, adversely impact those populations, but also are, will affect all of us in ways that we, you know, have not yet um, come to see. One um, really sort of explicit story about that that I think is worth telling is that, you know, before the pandemic, I know of dozens and dozens of people who had financial resources, who had vouchers um, in order to pay for housing and still were not able to find housing for over a year. So as we move into this next phase, and so we know that that housing shortage sort of deeply impacts folks who are um, at the bottom of the financial resource scale, but that housing shortage like creeps all the way on up. And we've, you know, there was an article in seven days and the Brattleboro Reformer Network about state rep 
Kelly Payala, who um, lives in Londonderry and is about to um, can't find any housing for herself because her condo is being sold to become a short-term rental. So when we have this shortage, the impacts, like the individual health impacts on um, are much worse on folks who are the most marginalized, but the actual crisis impacts everyone. But it's easy to sort of forget that because the the most suffering is by the most marginalized folks. But that doesn't mean that the crisis isn't messing with everyone's life. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a gen- it's a widespread crisis in the state of Vermont, but its impacts concentrate on those who are most vulnerable and most marginalized. And when I think about the housing crisis, it's going to be really important that we center equity in our responses and that we ensure um, that those that are most marginalized are not forgotten in the decisions that we make moving forward. We know that the vast majority of unhoused people can be successfully rehoused if um, the if the appropriate housing solutions um, are created. And so it's really incumbent upon us to think about what are the exceptional measures that need to be taken? um, What are the barriers that need to be overcome um, to make that possible? And I think this is going to, you know, just as we set aside that business as usual mentality to respond to the pandemic, we're willing to um, enact sweeping waivers. We also... um, you know, have to set aside this business as usual mentality and thinking about um, our state's housing crisis. And as someone who has worked in public health for for many, many years, going through and reaching, going through COVID and researching it, what did this pandemic teach you? I've learned a, a lot from the pandemic, but one thing um, that I've come to understand is the importance of bringing a public health lens to bear on some of these questions. I have always worked in partnership across sectors, but so many of the the problems that we see um, require um, collaboration across our sectors. And so it's really helped me to understand the gaps um, in the ways that we think about public health and we do when we do our work. So that would be, I I would say that's one thing um, that I've learned from that. I think that the other thing is that we really need to think about um, how do we sustain interventions over a very long period of time as we move um, forward. One of the challenges around the pandemic has been that we're very um, focused on short-term emergency response, but we we don't really have good mechanisms for sustaining the things that we do um, over a year or longer. Sorry, a plane went, it, it's still going over. <laughs> I can hear it at my house too, and we're quite far away from each other. Yes, we are. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Anne. You know, what you said about sustaining interventions, it just brought home for me how often I feel when we are working with folks who are um, the most marginalized or working with some issues such as homelessness, we always approach it, and it is a crisis, so I I don't want to diminish that, but we approach it with this crisis mentality. And I wonder sometimes, for example, a lot of our systems don't kick in until someone's really in crisis mode. And most of our um, systems are only set up to deal with a crisis rather than long-term. And to me, that feels like such a mind shift in general that really needs to happen around our social services. Yeah, I would- Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say that people often ask me, because I talk about the housing crisis fairly incessantly, people are often like, well, why are we in this situation? I'm like, that's like a 50-year story that I'm going to need to tell you about, like, both national policy and Vermont policy and, like, how our economy is structured and how we use land and, like, some of our values. Like, I can't, this is not, this is a complex issue, but it actually has some fairly simple solutions, which is delightful. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I would add also to that there's sort of this desire to medicalize some, yes. you know, these interventions yeah. around housing. And so when I think about, you know, this crisis mentality that we bring to bear on some of these questions, what we need to move past is thinking about like housing is something that we're going to dispense like we do medicine from a mm -hmm. pharmacy and rather recognize that it's not going to come from the health, the health sector. It's not this short term response. And so we've got to get out of you know that that mentality is even some of the work that's done around what we often call the social determinants of health those you know factors outside of the health sector that have, that shape our health um, is very narrowly focused or it's crisis focused or it's 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 done around the provision of medical care and so we've we have to have a much more expansive long-term um, view of how we do this public health really has to see itself um, as working in partnership you know, to um, support the longer term solutions that we need. Because infrastructure isn't something that we dispense to individuals. Infrastructure is just something that's there and available for anyone to access. That's that is the definition of public infrastructure, whether that's sort of social or physical infrastructure. I don't know if on the show we've ever talked about sort of the wheel of the social indicators of health and just sort of like the basic fractions, because I, I remember the first time I heard that many years ago, I was a little bit blown away. So do you know what I'm talking about when I? Yeah, when we, yeah, when we talk about this, you know, the social determinants of health, we're talking about the factors that shape our health. And that includes the places we work, live, learn and play. It also includes things, um, poverty and discrimination, all those broader social forces that affect our health. And, you know, to go back to what we said earlier, um, there's been this debate really very recently about the language we use um, around health, whether we say health is in your hands or it's in our hands. And really um, what this has brought out is the reality that our health is shaped by social forces, forces that are go beyond the individual. And that, that also includes the natural environment in which we live. It includes the places, you know, we go to school, our learning environments. Um, so all of these, all of these things come together to produce health and they can either generate positive health outcomes, you know, or healthy places um, or to, you know, to, to be, um, but they also can um, generate um, adverse outcomes. And when we see inequities, often what we're seeing is disproportionate and unjust or unfair um, exposures to the things that contribute to negative outcomes. And so my memory of like this pie chart, the first time anyone explained this to me was that like, it was like 10% of your health is related to anything medical and all the rest was sort of environment, housing, social. We yeah, we often say, I think it's 80, 20. Okay, thank you. 80% of health is determined outside of the health sector. I don't know if we can put an exact percentage on it. But I think we've all come to understand this year that health is produced in our communities. It radically altered the ways that we live, learn, work and play. And so I hope that we'll take from the pandemic an understanding that so much of what we um, do in our communities influences our health. That, that would be, if there's one thing that I want everyone to understand, um, it's, it's that you know, as we come out of the pandemic. You, you kind of answered my, my last question, which was what should, we, what should we take away? So I'm going to tweak it just a little bit because I want it to really sink in for our listeners. If we were to design a community that really encompassed public health and some of the concepts we're talking about right now, just to kind of drive it home, what would that, how would that community function? What would its layout be? You know, what, what aspects of that community would be public health? So what I would, I guess what I would say is that a lot of our policies are designed um, with the idea that all of us are equally at risk, rather um, within a recognition um, that some people are at disproportionate risk than others. And so if we want to get to communities um, that actually produce health and that create the conditions for health for everyone, 
then we need um, to design our policies and our actions at community levels with the needs of those who have disproportionate risks. So our marginalized populations, vulnerable communities need to be prioritized and we need to direct more of our public resources towards them. Um, and we need to do that because that is what will equalize outcomes for all of us. And so what does that mean practically? It means that if we know that housing conditions are contributing to poor health outcomes, we're going to have to put more of our resources into the groups um, that are at highest risk. If we know that employment or um, environmental conditions are there, we need to make sure that our policies um, give a greater attention to those groups um, that are at highest at highest risk, and it re- what this really means is centering equity or centering those um, higher risk populations in everything um, that we do going forward. Thank you, and Emily. Anything you want to leave listeners with before we end the show? I think Anne said it all. Thank you. Fantastic. Do you have a toast, or would you like me to toast? Please do. I would like to toast quite simply to healthy communities and finding better ways forward with policy that can encompass some of the concepts that Emily and Anne were talking about today. Cheers. 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 Thank you, everyone, for joining us today on the Montpelier Happy Hour. Thank you. Anne Sawson from Dartmouth College for speaking to us about public health today. Emily, if people want to find you, where can they do that? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org where you can find my phone number, my email addresses, links to all my social media accounts, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I think that covers it. I am going to do a series of policy forums throughout the summer instead of my usual weekly office hours. And so I encourage folks to tune in and pay attention to hear about those when they're coming up. They will be in public for um, human-to-human real-life contact. And if anyone wants to dive into some of what we've been talking about today with public health, are there any resources, websites, um, publications you would direct them to? Sure. There's a lot that's been written about um, this um, particular topic that we've been discussing. I often share it over Twitter, so you can find me there um, at A. Uh, Sassen, or um, feel free to reach out over email um, at my Dartmouth account. I'm easily um, found um, over the web. So thank you. Wonderful. Hey, thank you everyone for joining us. The Montpelier Happy Hour will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, BCTV, and as always, YouTube. Take care, everyone. Have a good weekend.